just kind of catch up to speed on back what we talked about so far in 2 Corinthians. I'm just going to give you a little bit of walkthrough of where we're at. Uh, the church was started by the Apostle Paul. He went into this Gentile community and he started this church. And he spent 18 months personally there. So imagine Apostle, the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest evangelist who ever lived, goes in, starts this church, first generation believers. He disciples these people. He spends a year and a half there. And then he leaves. And shortly thereafter, there's all kinds of problems within the church. And so I think a certain level, sometimes we forget that as human beings who still continue to struggle with the flesh, we have the enemy, the devil, and we also live in this world, that there's going to be challenges, and there's, there's temptations to drift in our faith, and there's temptations to run after other things, and we can sit here and think like that's somebody else's problem, but we're all guilty from time to time, those who are less mature in the faith, those who are not uh, living out your identity in Christ the way that you should be, and you have the, the power to be, then you find yourself much more apt to fall into worldly patterns, worldly ways of thinking, allowing the flesh to control you. And the more that we grow in Christ and the more that we focus on Jesus, the less and less of a struggle it'll be, but it'll continue to be a struggle. And I think that we as Christians, we, we definitely don't want to deny that reality. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But this church in, in Corinth, I mean, they're a mess. They're all, as I pointed out some weeks ago, these are all baby Christians. These are all first-generation Christians. And so these scandals came about in the church. There's one member suing another member in the church uh, over issues. There's selfishness. There's self-indulgence. And it's just a, a real mess. And so Paul sends 1 Corinthians in order to address that those situations. Well, it continues on. In fact, in some ways, it just gets worse. So Paul has to make a quick visit to the church. And this is referred to as a painful visit. And it was painful not just for the Corinthians who he confronted, but it was painful for Paul as well because he was rejected. He was attacked personally by the people in the church. There were those in the church who were rejecting his leadership. They were rejecting his authority, his apostleship. And so there were all kinds of stuff going on. And Paul actually retreats at this point. He leaves at this point. And they continue to, to struggle. And so Paul then sends another letter a letter that we don't have, a letter it's often referred to as the severe letter. Paul refers to it in this book of 2 Corinthians that we call 2 Corinthians. And in the severe letter, Paul addresses some of these things. He expresses his love for the Corinthians, but he insists they deal with this person particularly or people who were defying his leadership, his apostleship. And so apparently the letter achieved its objective and it resulted in repentance from many in the church and they wanted to reconcile with Paul. They wanted to build a relationship back with Paul. So Paul writes 2 Corinthians to assure the church of his love and his commitment to them. So that's a lot of walking through where we're at, but it's important to know the background historically when we read books of the Bible. And sometimes we can jump in, we can start reading, or maybe you follow the reading method where you just kind of flip your Bible open, wherever you land, you start reading. I would encourage you, there's so many good Bible resources. We live in a, in a great time where there's so much and you can read the history through a good study Bible or online, a good history of the book, why this was written, and it really helps you get a good perspective on the specific issues that were being addressed and then the application that we can take from this. And so in chapter 3, Paul has been talking about the glories of the new covenant, and I'll 
redefine that in a few minutes. And he's contrasting it with the old covenant. And that's where we were in chapter 3. So we're going to jump back in because we stopped right in the middle of chapter 3. And we're going to be in verses 12 through 18. So I'm going to read this, follow along on the screen in your Bible as I read. Paul writes, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word and we just recognize just the, the supernatural ability of your word to break down barriers and to soften hard hearts, to speak to wayward believers, to encourage those who are walking in the faith and those who are struggling in the faith. And God, today I pray that your word will be an encouragement. Help us to live in this culture with a bold and courageous spirit because of your spirit that empowers us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Paul says, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. So what was he talking about? He was talking about, he was defending his apostleship. He was defending himself. And if you look back to verse 1, if you have your Bible open, Paul even says, like, they're asking, believe it or not, for, like, letters of recommendation for Paul. Like, hey, okay, Paul, show us your credentials. Because Paul didn't measure up to some of the standards of their culture when it came to what they wanted out of a spiritual leader, a speaker. Paul was of a, a, probably a humble demeanor. Pro chances are all the abuse and all the things that Paul had went through that he wasn't looking so fit anymore, right? And he was, he was uh, struggling physically, possibly eye problems, couldn't see very well. And so Paul did not fit the mold of what they thought a leader should be and what this person who has authority should be. And so Paul was even, at, at some level, it appears like mocked because of some of these things. And so Paul says, really? You need me to prove who I am? Here's the proof. Here's your letter of recommendation. He says, look at your lives. Look at your very church. Your church exists. Your life has been changed because of my ministry to you. And so Paul points to the new covenant, what God has done for us in Christ, for his boldness and his authority, because he wants to make clear, even though he's saying, look, I'm the one that came in and made and, and facilitated this change in your lives and in the church, he wants to be clear that he's not promoting himself, all right? Paul is not promoting himself. And if anything, Paul always points to Jesus, but there are times when Paul does say, like I talked about last week, follow me as I follow Jesus. So Paul was clear that his life was an example to others, but this was not self-promotion. Our society is great at self-promotion, and you got to be careful. Be very, very careful in the society that you don't buy into this self-promotion, self-honoring, star for attention, I need validation, I need approval type of, of spirit, because you can 
turn on the internet, the TV, or anything and see even pastors who buy into this, it's all about them, and, and it's really more of a self-promotion than it is a Jesus promotion. And I read that a study, one study recently said that young women spend nearly an hour per day taking selfies, right? So if you follow that girl in the mall or uh, you've been out somewhere and it's like, constant click and take pictures of herself. We live in this culture that all we want to do is promote ourselves. And at the end of the day, it's an issue with not understanding who we are in Christ. It's, it's questioning what God has done. It's questioning his authority, his power. Paul points to Jesus and he points to what Jesus has done through him. And he says, this is where my boldness and this is where my authority comes from. I find my identity in Christ, not through all this superficial stuff the world tells us, defines us, and makes us who we are. It's kind of funny. On Sunday mornings, Mitch and I get here really early. I mean, really, really early. And we kind of start the gym set up before the team rolls in here at 6.30. And it seems like the police department has Mitch's number here, all right? So, like, I don't know why, but they're always, like, following him when he comes up here or showing up. And this morning, he walks in, and I'm standing here, and he, he's like, man, there's a bunch of police officers out there. And I was like, what's going on? Is it, are they following you again? And he's like, no, no, they said there's somebody stole a car and they're looking, but they asked me, do you work here, right? And, and he's like, yes, I've told you all before, I, I work here. This, I, you know, I, I belong here. And I think so many times that we question our identity and other people can look at us like, oh, I thought you were a Christian. Why are you sinning? Why are you struggling? Why don't you have it together? And we begin to struggle with our identity in Christ. I'm such a failure. You know, I, I don't understand why, you know, Christianity makes these claims and I just can't get my act together. And I want us to remember that we never will arrive at perfection on this earth. And our struggle with sin is going to continue on until eternity. Yes, we get more mature again in Christ and we grow in our love for the word and the word speaks to us, the Holy Spirit works, but it's still an ongoing battle and struggle. And the fact is, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago as well, that it's not you're always how you're how victorious you are over sin that defines your identity in Christ, well, oftentimes it's just your attitude and resilience in the battle against sin. Because there's some sins that are more like the branches of sin, the things that people obviously see, that we can really get those things in check. You know, we're not quite as angry as we once were. That's God's spirit working. But some of it could be that we're just growing up and mature more and we're not quite as struggling with that problem as much. But the root sins can still be there in our lives, and we do a really good job of covering those up. And God works into the root sins. He gets those root sins and works on those. But we're going to continue to struggle with those. Those things like approval and those things like control and power. Think about the way that you're wired and the way that you operate and the things that you do that are driven by these insecurities in your life. Those are sins. Those sins drive your behavior. But sometimes we think because we've gotten a lot of the superficial stuff in check that we're doing pretty good, and other people, look at them, they're really struggling. But I would dare say that oftentimes, while the branches of the sin can look better, the root is still corrupt, and it comes out in different areas, maybe less noticeable areas of your life. And so I hope that makes sense to you, the fact that we know that our identity in Christ is what matters, and that's what changes us from the inside out. And Jesus is personally committed to the people in Corinth. He can call them saints. He can call them his beloved because 
God's spirit lives within them, and he's transforming them and changing, changing them. And so Paul here, he has to reiterate the fact that, hey, I can be bold because what Jesus has done. Jesus has personally commissioned Paul for his ministry, and regardless of what they think about him, regardless of the way they look at him and judge him, he said, Jesus commissioned me. I'm an ambassador for Christ. And the 180 change that happened in Paul's life when he came to know Jesus is quite amazing. And I spoke to that again the last few weeks. But he was a Pharisee. He studied under one of the greatest teachers of Judaism at the time. He was a devout Jew. He says he was blameless when it came to keeping the law. And he believed that Christianity was a cult to be destroyed. And he was set on bringing an end to Christianity until God called him. And so after his conversion, he's radically changed. And, Paul, and Jesus uses Paul to spread the gospel far beyond his home turf of Jerusalem. And his boldness and his courage is just a fruit of the Spirit working in him and controlling him. And that's the way that God wants us to live as well. God doesn't want us to be cowards. He wants to be, us to be bold and courageous. He wants us to rest in him, rest our identity in him, who he is and what he's done for us. And in that, we find freedom. Not in, oh, let me take the right angle, the right selfie, so that I appear to be something that maybe I'm not, right? And so I portray this image, and I want people to see me. And maybe you're thinking, well, I've never taken a selfie in my life. But maybe at work, you walk in and you're like, oh, okay, let me put on this persona like I'm in charge, I'm in control. All right, you better listen to me or I'll fire you. I mean, it can reveal itself in a lot of different ways. And so we find rest and freedom and confidence in Christ and Christ alone. And he gives us boldness and courage to live for him as an ambassador for him. And so Paul got that. And as Paul walks them through this new covenant, uh, he says, this is where my courage and boldness come from, even though you may not respect me physically, and you may not even respect my abilities to speak and my uh, leadership ability. You can look down on those, but that's not where I find my worth. He says, verse 12 again, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And then he says something that takes some explanation. He says, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So Paul shows them where his boldness comes from. He brings up Moses. Why does he bring up Moses to a Gentile church? It's possible that there were some people who were Jewish faith, who, who came out of Judaism, were drifting back into the law, and Paul was confronting those. I talked about that some weeks earlier, that I don't think that was the case in this church as much as the fact that he wants them to see a couple things. He wants these Gentile believers to understand that these Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, they're, the, they're part of the same family, that Gentile believers, Jewish believers, same exact family, same roots, even though they may not have grown up in Judaism and in that religion, that they still have their roots in the same place. Why is that important? Well, in a few chapters, Paul's going to talk to them about an offering that they're going to be given to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So I'm sure he's wanting to them to see, hey, these people are on your team, right? They're, they're back in Jerusalem, but you guys are part of the same team going the same direction. In fact, if it wasn't for them, you wouldn't be here. Your roots are based on them, that you're, they're your foundation. And then also, I think Paul wants them to realize that the gift of the Spirit and the new covenant is far more glorious than the old covenant and the things that God did in the past with Moses 
when Moses went up to meet God on Mount Sinai, that what God's done now, this new covenant, is far more glorious than the old covenant. And he's definitely not criticizing the old covenant or belittling the old covenant. The old covenant had glory, he talked about, but compared to the new covenant, it doesn't it, it can't hold water. It's just not in the same ballpark even. And so he says that when Moses, a little background, when Moses went up to meet with God and see God in his glory, it literally and temporarily changed Moses' very appearance. So when he brought the law down from the mountain, his face was glowing because God's glory had been all over him. And this law that he was bringing to the people was glorious. And so this was an expression of God's holiness. And everyone could visibly see that on the face of Moses. But Paul says that those who minister in God's new covenant are able to be bold and courageous as opposed to Moses, who in and of himself, Moses wasn't scared of the people. He wasn't trying to deceive or cover up. What Moses was doing, which Paul explains in verse 12, look at it, follow with me here who would put a veil over his face. Why? So that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So Paul provides the clarity. He says that Moses knew. He literally knew when he received this covenant from God, whether God told him this or he just had that intuition to understand that this covenant that he was bringing was not the final word, that it would come to an end. It was going to pass away. And so Moses veiled his face when he left the presence of God so the Israelites could not see that this was only a fading glory and that Moses needed a recharging. When he'd go back and meet with God, then his face would glow brighter again. And so they, Moses hid it so they would not see this fading glory. Why? Why did Moses not want them to see this? Because he understood that their, their hearts were hard. And we know this when we study the Old Testament. Israel not much different than us today, right? But Israel constantly, we're in this cycle of trusting God, then falling into sin, punishment, or they were chastised by God, they repented, came back to God, and so they were in this cycle. And because for them, this covenant with God was based upon, you do your part, God says, and I'll do my part. That this covenant was based upon the fact that they respond accordingly or God's punishment was brought upon them. Well, we know the, the new covenant says something totally different, a whole different word. What does it say? It says that Jesus took the punishment and there's now no more punishment for us. Yes, there's natural outcomes of sin. There's consequences to your sin. If you're doing something that's immoral and secretive, yeah, trust me, it's going to catch up with you because consequences of sin, you sow, reap what you sow. But God's punishment, if you're a believer, if your faith is in Jesus, Jesus took the punishment. God is done punishing you. He looks at you and sees his son or his daughter. And so for us, anything that God allows and brings into our life is to conform us to, into the image of Jesus. So Paul's primary goal here, again, is to highlight the glorious ministry of the new covenant of Jesus and the fact that he's been entrusted with this. So no matter if they look at him and they see Paul going through this really tough time and he's being uh, persecuted, he's got scars on his body to reveal the fact that he's been suffering, Paul says, look, these are not indicators that God's against me. In fact, these are uh, to show you that truthfully I'm bringing in something that's great and amazing and don't judge me based upon that because these are suffer sufferings for Jesus like Jesus suffered and so 
put your eyes upon Jesus and take your eyes off of yourself. Don't lose heart in ministry. And, you know, we, we, we see this every day. Those of us who are serving other people, and hopefully you're serving other people, your neighbors around you, you're looking out and trying to reach out and be a, a witness and ambassador for Christ for those around. People disappoint you. They do. Right? People rarely do what you expect them to do, which is kind of interesting at times because then other times you can have low expectations for somebody and then boom, lo and behold, God does something amazing in their life and you're like, God, I really wasn't as faithful as I should have been, but look what you're doing, right? And so God just surprises us sometimes, but people don't do what we expect. The grace and the love that you show in ministry rarely is returned, and people can take advantage of your generosity. Satan can whisper lies into your heart and tell you things that just are not true. And again, the flesh just fights against the spirit every step of the way. And so Paul understood these struggles. He's very honest in his writings about the challenges he faces. He knows that he's been rejected, and he will be rejected by other believers, people who claim to be Christians. They undermine his leadership. They question his abilities. But he suggested a true apostle. They suggested a true apostle would never suffer like that. But Paul says, yes, I do suffer. The scars that are on my body are for Jesus. And God is working, and so I can be very bold. My boldness comes from the Holy Spirit's power or presence, not because of these superficial things that you put on, you're focused on. And so because of Jesus and because of the new covenant, he could go to the source of his strength, unlike Moses, comparing to Moses again, who was fearful when he went to meet with God, who could not have the confidence that Paul himself had. In fact, the passage that Mitch read earlier during worship, verse 16, which I quoted last week, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Moses couldn't enter God's presence with that level of confidence, but we can. And I left that as your hands application last week. And so we don't just move on and, okay, we just, the next thing, how, how did you do with that last week? Were you confident and did you go to God to receive mercy and find grace? in time of need. And if it was a rough week, you probably did. You're like, whoa, I, you know, I had a need and I just, I had to spend time in prayer. But what if your week was relatively calm and you just even, didn't even recognize the spiritual needs of those around you and your own spiritual need. And so your approach to God was very casual and very like, you know, whenever I get around to it, you know, uh, let me pray real quick before I head out the door over this meal. And there was very little conscientious, intentional time of going to the throne of grace. Moses realized the seriousness of this. And because of Jesus, we can enter in with confidence, but that doesn't mean that we should just act like God is at our disposal. All right, I'll just, you know, God, I'll, I'll meet with you when I want to meet with you. You just wait there for me, God, and I'll, I'll get with you, all right? Why don't we spend more intentional time in prayer? Think about that. Process that. Is it a lack of faith? Is it a priority, just a lack of priorities? Is it just busyness, maybe? Just we're running around doing our stuff and... Sometimes we just forget to talk to God and go to God. There's so many different reasons why that could be the case, but I really 
believe this is probably the main reason why Christians are lacking the power and the boldness is because our failure just to go to God, except when we want things fixed, right? When we want him to be the little genie in the bottle that we rub and make this right, you know, make my first world problems go away. And God says, come and bring your needs to the throne of grace, to find grace and mercy in times of need. And our time of need is continual because we will not be about the business of our Father without a constant dependence upon God and a constant awareness of his presence within us. And so Moses, he knew something greater was coming than the law and the expected external obedience to that law. He knew this was temporary. And so Paul says he puts a veil over his face so that the people won't gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end because their minds were hardened. Moses was not bold because he knew that the people could not accept the truth that he was get, what needed to give them. And God, in his sovereignty, did not want it given to them. In some way, God, in fact, hardened the hearts of the Israelites, as we learn from Romans. But the Israelites of Moses' time and the majority of Israelites throughout history have failed to understand the plan that God was implementing and he was working. And there's really, honestly, no excuse for it. You go back to the prophets and to Jeremiah and the prophecies and prophecies like Jeremiah 31, 31 through 32, where the prophet writes, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. The covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, even though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. So people rejected God's plan in the Old Testament. And in Paul's day, the vast majority of Jews rejected God's provision of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14, Paul writes, For to this day, when we read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. God had provided more than enough evidence of Jesus. In fact, not only did they have the prophets, but they had some very tangible, visible things. At the time of Paul, do you realize this? At the time of Paul's writing here, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. And if you think about the temple, you think about what happened at the temple. That was the center of all their Jewish religious life. And it was the place where animal sacrifices were carried out and worship according to the law of Moses was faithfully followed. And in the temple, this veil separated the holies of holy, the earthly dwelling place of God's presence from the rest of the temple. And in that holy is the holy separated by this big, thick curtain, this veil. Only the high priest could enter there only one day per year on the Day of Atonement. And so God gave a couple of very supernatural occurrences to the people of Israel to know that he was doing something new and something great. At the death of Jesus, the veil in the temple was torn in two, supernaturally, just ripped apart. I mean, that is, I mean this was not a small little thing. This was 40 feet, 50 feet tall, thick, and God supernaturally ripped it apart to symbolize and show, look, I'm doing a new thing. Enter boldly. Come to me. 
You don't need a priest. You don't need animal sacrifices. It's done. It's finished. The work is over. Jesus paid it all. And then, to make matters even clearer, because Jewish people continued on and continued on, right? So in 70, AD 70, we're talking about just not many years after Jesus died and rose again and ascended back to heaven, that the Roman the Romans came in and they completely annihilated the temple, destroyed it, just broke it down to the ground pretty much. And we have remnants today that are still left, but was that not God saying, look, I've done something new, something great. There's a new covenant. You can't continue to worship the way that you once did. You can't bring sacrifices. There's nowhere to bring them. There's no high priest to go in and offer these things for you because Jesus is your high priest. But the people of Israel continue to this day to reject Jesus in the new covenant. Verse 15, yes, to this day, Paul says, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. When he talks about Moses is read, he's talking about the law, the old covenant. And Paul's made it clear as we look back into the earlier verses of this chapter, the letter kills, but the spirit produces life. This contrast between the law and the spirit. And the law was never intended to be the people's savior. People wrongly thought that they could keep, find salvation through keeping the law. And many, like the Pharisees, like Paul himself before Christ, lowered its moral requirements so they could achieve this external, superficial righteousness. And that's why Paul said he could be blameless according to the law because they lowered the standard. Pastor John MacArthur says it this way. He says, But by doing so, the lowering of the requirements of the law, they rendered the law's purpose of revealing their sin and helplessness ineffective. Since they did not realize they were lost, they saw no need of a Savior. So they saw no need for Jesus. There was no need when Jesus showed up. We don't want a suffering servant. We don't need a, we don't need a Messiah who dies. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what God was up to. But verse 16, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When you turn to Jesus, that veil of effort and work and measuring up and thinking you can do something to be righteous enough for God, Jesus removes that. You understand that you can't be anywhere close to being good enough to measure up. I was having this talk this, this, this past week with a guy. He grew up in church, was even a leader in, a le in leadership at a church somewhere in the rural area around. And I was asking him about salvation is faith, and he couldn't really explain. And I finally went to a question that oftentimes you're taught in evangelism classes. I don't really care for the question, but it, it gets to the point of the heart of the matter. I said, if you show up at heaven, in heaven, and God says, why should I let you in? What would you say? And his response was, I'm a good guy. I was like, not the right answer. But sadly, listen, sadly, many people even possibly sitting right here today, you buy into that idea because Satan blinds your mind to the glories of the gospel. There's nothing you can do to measure up. You can't be good enough. That's why Jesus came and that's why Jesus died. And that's why when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You understand that access to the holies of holy, to God's throne, to him himself, doesn't come through you being blameless. It comes through Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God who paid for our sins. 
And so Christians still today, people who put their faith in Christ, we still try to build our lives around regulation and rules and codes and things that make us feel like we're measuring up. And it's just a form of legalism. It's a form of law that says, yeah, God accepts me through Christ, but now I have to make all the effort and do all the work and put all the boundaries and the parameters in my life in order for God to accept me. Look, there's nothing wrong, as I talked about last week, with regulations and rules and boundaries. The, the, the gospel doesn't speak against making effort, but it does speak against trying to earn God. And so there's a heart problem. There's an issue at the very heart of your relationship with God when you constantly put the focus upon your earning and your working and your efforts versus what Jesus did for you. Some of our fight clubs, we say it this way, for every one look at your sin, take 10 looks at Jesus. Because if you look at your sin, it can be very discouraging. Because once you think you got this one figured out and, and kind of got it under control, you'll see about 10 or 12 others. And then this one will spring up and rear its ugly head when you least expected it to do so. Because the flesh can't be put under control. You can't control the flesh, but you can walk in the spirit. Walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh, scripture says. So we walk in the spirit, how? By keeping our eyes upon Jesus. By being in the throne room with God continually, aware of his presence, aware of his sacrifice. And so be careful that you don't make that slight shift in your mind where it just becomes about your effort to earn God's approval. And that goes down to some of those root issues again that we don't always see in your life. We don't see where those things are controlling you. The Holy Spirit's the one that points those out and reveals that attitude and that way of thinking to you and so that you can correct that thinking and focus your mind and your heart upon Jesus Christ. But the people of Moses' day, they had that veil over their eyes and they failed to see this purpose of the law. And they failed to see Jesus. And look what Jesus told the people of Israel in John chapter 5. He says, You search the scripture because you think they give eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Could Jesus be any more clear? If you really believe Moses, verse 46, you would believe me because he wrote about me. You see, Moses had revelation from God that this old covenant was coming to an end. God was doing something greater. And then chapter 6, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, the prophet, who is come into the world. Moses pointed to Jesus. The people knew Moses had prophesied about a Messiah. That's why they referred to Jesus as the prophet. And so when people turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. Jesus removes our blindness and creates within us a new heart, a new disposition toward sin. We no longer find pleasure in sin. We're, we're miserable in sin. We're miserable living that way. And God gives us this boldness. He gives us this courage. And we don't need, like Moses, to go and have a mountaintop experience and encounter God in order to have that. Look, I love mountaintop experiences spiritually just as much as the rest of you do. All those years of D-Now, you know, those were great. Going to Passion a few weeks ago and just getting just encouraged and just hearing such great teaching and singing such great songs and just so many Christians there together. But, you know, you realize as you grow in Christ that 
we don't need the external motivation near as much as we need that internal motivation. The Spirit lives within us. I love Sundays. I love the encouragement, the energy we get from people coming here and singing songs and studying the Word together. But we had to learn that we need to go to the source ourselves, to the throne room of God ourselves, to Jesus himself, and he defines us. He's the one that we can live the life that he's called us to live and not have to just skip from experience to experience to experience, but we know that Jesus changes us, and he is changing us from the inside out, and he defines us. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. So that's interesting, right? Jesus is the Holy Spirit, right? We, we see the Trinity right there in action. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom. The Spirit changes us. He gives us freedom. He gives us transformation of heart, transformation of character, transformation of life. Yet we constantly still fall back to legalism and rules in order to try to change people. I encourage you to, if you're a parent in here, have never read the book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. It's on the book cart. It's only five bucks. Uh, I encourage you to get that. It's a great book that talks about how that we parent the heart. You know, you can tell your, your kid, okay, Junior, take out the trash. If they look at you and they say, no, I'm not going to do that, right? You as your parent, hopefully, you can force them to do what you've asked them to do. And ultimately, even if they tell you no, if, you're, if you've got a kid like that who will tell you no, you can make them do what they're supposed to do, but they can do and take out the trash, and they can do the activity, but their heart is still just as hard after they take out the trash as it was before they took out the trash. So it talks about shepherding a child's heart and helping their heart be conformed to Christ and to what he wants for us. And so demanding obedience doesn't bring about heart change. I'm not going to, I'll quickly show the graphic that I talked about earlier about the heart, the root. I'm going to send this out in the email tomorrow because it's so good and so rich. And it really looks at this idea of the fact that we can change the behaviors, but the root, the heart doesn't change. And so I don't have time to go into this today. I'm running out of time, but, but I want to send this out tomorrow in the email and I hope you guys will look at it and I'll give a little explanation. So let's go to verse 17. Now, again, where the Lord, and now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Just a quick commentary by Pastor Tony Evans on this. He says, spiritual freedom is living a thank you life and a want to life, a relationship, rather than a have to life, law. We are to seek to please God and gain approval for our obedience because of our acceptance, not to earn it. And so this is the freedom, and I don't have time to go into the freedom of, of Christ that we have in Christ, but this is the freedom. Freedom, some people want to twist freedom. All I have freedom in Christ. That means I can just live however I want to live, right? That is not the Bible. That is not scriptural. And out of a changed heart comes different attitudes and desires. But it is not a I have to do something. If that's your, if that's your attitude, then chances are you're focused on law rather than grace. You don't experience the freedom that you have in Christ. And then verse 18, he just really speaks to the fact that this new covenant understanding and this transformation that happens, it's a lifetime journey. It's a journey that we stay on all our life. Look at it, verse 18. And we all, every one of us, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transferred. Are being transferred. This is something that's being done to us 
the work by God upon us into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. I want to encourage Grace Church, I want to encourage you to realize that, and we all isn't a select few with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord. That's not just the elders or deacons or staff. That's everyone who has the Holy Spirit living within you, every believer in here. You can behold the glory of the Lord. And you can allow this process of transformation to have its full work in your life as you submit to the work of the Holy Spirit and recognize the work that God's doing upon you. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. We turn to Jesus and we're being transformed. Every person who's put their faith in Christ into the glory of the Lord from one degree of glory to another. That original back, way back to the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, God, they were created in the image of God. That image was marred. It was scarred. It was corrupted. In Christ, we're being restored into the likeness of Jesus, transformed into his likeness. Those things in your life that you don't like, the fact that you don't like them, that's transformation happening. Those sins that have your number, that get you down, that you're trying your best against, God's transforming you. Work with the Holy Spirit, not through external efforts and laws, but first and foremost with the Holy Spirit's work through looking to Jesus and understanding that Jesus is the one who's transforming you. But you can't expect any more than you could of going a week without eating a meal and then coming in on Sunday and having lunch to nourish you for the rest of the week. You can't expect that physically, but so many, so many of us are expecting that spiritually. We expect that we get fed here and we go out and the next time we're really fed is when we come back in again. We need to allow the spirit to work. And through that, we just have a healthy and consistent dose of God's word. And the spirit transforms us into the image of Christ as we dwell upon the word of Christ, the, the work of Christ and what he's done for us. So, our hands application is very simple. It's a, it's a verse from Scripture, from Colossians, and it's one of my favorite verses. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one, one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ just fill you up, he says. Let it dwell within you. Those K-groups who do sermon follow-ups, we're going to talk about what, what are some of the main reasons? What, can you define like what the one reason is why you're believing the lies of Satan or you're not focused upon Christ rather than yourself or your agendas or your focuses on what you got to do and you're ignoring Christ rather than letting the work of Christ just fill you up, the word of Christ. This is the gospel. This is preaching the gospel to yourself. This is preaching the gospel to each other. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and then you're teaching and admonishing one another. So we're sharing, we're encouraging each other. We do that through things like Fight Club, through groups that meet, discipleship, through K-groups that get together, through opportunities like foundations, uh, live prep time where we're sharing God's word and encouraging each other. These are all avenues for us to admonish and encourage each other. And we need that.
because our natural drift, as I said last week, isn't toward holiness and godliness. Our natural drift is away from that. God's working. We join him in what he's doing. We submit to him and we let, by letting the word of Christ just fill us up. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the reminders from your word today that as new covenant believers, as those who have placed our faith in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit lives within us and the Spirit gives us freedom, peace, courage, boldness as we embrace the work that you're doing within, within us. And Father God, I pray for the discouraged Christian today. I pray for the wayward Christian, the apathetic Christian, the Christian who's lost their desire for you, God. I pray that today they will feel your encouragement, but not see a mountaintop experience as the answer, but help them to see that you live within them, and that's their hope of glory. And God, I pray that you will help us to encourage each other, God. Help us in our K groups to look for opportunities, not just to go and attend and eat, but God, help us to look for opportunities to really be there for one another and admonish and encourage each other as we need. And God, I thank you for this church. Thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.